This is The Churches the World, Chapter 2, Episode 5, The Geography of the Region Known as Mesopotamia. For those of you listening when the episode is originally released, you know that it's the first week of 2016, and hence the new intro and the coming outro music. I hope you like it. Last week, I worked through the creation story presented in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Within those books, several geographic points were mentioned. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 11, 13, and 14, four rivers were referred to. The first is the Pishon, then the Gion, followed by the Tigris, and finally the Euphrates. Also within the verses, regions called Havilah, Cush, and Assyria are discussed. It is these geographic areas that are the focus of this podcast. So let's get started. In Genesis, the Pishon River is described as encircling the entire land of Havilah. Despite Genesis describing it more than any of the other three rivers, the Pishon has never been clearly found. It is briefly mentioned together with the Tigris in the Old Testament book of the Wisdom of Sirach in chapter 24. The book states, quoting from the New Revised Standard Version, All this is the book of the covenant of the Most High God, the law that Moses commanded us as an inheritance for the congregations of Jacob. It overflows, like the Pishon, with wisdom, and like the Tigris at the time of the first fruits. It runs over, like the Euphrates, with understanding, and like the Jordan at harvest time. It pours forth instruction, like the Nile, like the Gion at the time of vintage. Of course, this reference throws no more light on the location of the river, but it does seem to be very poetic. As a note, the wisdom of Sirach is not included in the Protestant Bible, but it is included in the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox versions. The Jewish-Roman historian Flavius Josephus in the 1st century AD identified the Pishon with the Ganges, which flows through present-day India and Bangladesh. This seems a bit unlikely, as the distance from the general area of Genesis to the Ganges is close to a thousand miles. Not to mention that the book of Genesis states that all four rivers originate in the same place. But, and it took me a while to realize this, the book of Genesis never says how large the Garden of Eden is. So when someone mentions that it could be this river or that river, do not immediately rule it out due to the small size of Eden in your imagination. The medieval French rabbi Rashi, in the 11th century, identified the Pishon with the Nile. This seems more likely than the Ganges, but it is still uncertain, and does not address the location of the headwaters issue. Some early modern scholars of the 18th and 19th centuries believed Eden's source river was a region of springs. Specifically, it was believed that the Pishon and Gion were mountain streams. I'll get to the Gion in a minute. The Pishon may have been the Rioni, a river that originates in the Caucasus Mountains of the country of Georgia and flows into the Black Sea. Or it could have been the Araxes, another river that originates in the Caucasus and flows through present-day Turkey, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Iran. It eventually drains into the landlocked Caspian Sea. A little sidebar about the Caucasus region. The Caucasus is a region at the border of Europe and Asia, situated between the Black and Caspian Seas. It is home to the Caucasus Mountains, which contains Europe's highest mountain, Mount Elbrus, 
at over 18,000 feet or close to 6,000 meters. In our current world, the Caucasus is separated into northern and southern regions. The southern region consists of independent sovereign states, such as Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia, as well as parts of Iran and Turkey. The northern parts are part of the Russian Federation, including Chechnya. Many of these are locations you will hear about in the daily news, and now you know just a little bit more about them. Also, what do we call people from the Caucasus region? Well, quite simply, they are Caucasians. Now you know where that word comes from, too. And back to the rivers. James Sauer, former curator of the Harvard Semantic Museum, made an argument from geology and history that the Pishon referred to what is now the Wadi Bisha, a dry channel which begins in the Hayaz Mountains in southwestern present-day Saudi Arabia and flows northeast to Kuwait. The Pishon has also been identified with the Zerani Rud, placing the region of Havilah to the northeast of Mesopotamia, in present-day Kurdistan, Azerbaijan, and Iran. This river is known locally as the Golden River. Along its course, it meanders through ancient gold mines and loads of lapis, which is a deep blue precious stone, before feeding into the Caspian Sea. These minerals align with the ones associated with the land of Havilah in Genesis. And a note, the word Havilah in the Bible refers to both a land and people in several books. Havilah is mentioned in Genesis chapter 2 verses 10 and 11 as being the place where there is gold and that gold is good. I would guess that the good phrase means it requires little refining. There is also bdellium and onyx stone. Bdellium is a semi-transparent oleogum resin currently found in trees growing from North Africa to Central Asia. It is used in perfumes as incense and in traditional medicine. However, given that it was mentioned with gold and onyx, some believe what Genesis was referring to was not this resin, but was instead a precious stone, maybe even pearls. Onyx is, of course, a semi-precious stone of many colors, and usually with bands of black or white. It is found throughout the region, and really throughout the whole world. In addition to the region described in chapter 2 of Genesis, Two individuals named Havilah are listed in the Table of Nations, which delineates the descendants of Noah, who are considered the ancestors of many nations. Their names are brought up in Genesis chapters 10, verses 7 through 29, and 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verses 9 through 23. One is the son of Cush, the son of Ham, the other a son of Joktan, and a descendant of Shem. The region is mentioned in Genesis chapter 25, verse 18 as a land in the Arabian desert, where it defines the territory inhabited by the Ishmaelites as being from Havilah to Sur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. It was mentioned again in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 7, which states that King Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. Outside the Bible, the land of Havilah is mentioned in the Pseudo-Philo as the source of the precious jewels that the Amorites used in fashioning their idols in the days after Joshua, when Kenza was judge over the Israelites. Another tradition found in the literature of Clement, allegedly made by the Pope of the same name in the first century AD, states that in the early days after the Tower of Babylon, the children of Havilah, son of Jochan, built a city and kingdom which was near to those of his brothers, Sheba and Ophir. 
The region in Genesis is sometimes associated with either the Arabian Peninsula or northwest Yemen, but in his work about the Garden of Eden by Juris Zerens, the Hijaz Mountains appear to satisfactorily meet the description. This region is in the west of present-day Saudi Arabia. It is bordered on the west by the Red Sea, on the north by Jordan, on the east by Nej, and on the south by Asir. Its main city is Jeddah, but it is probably better known for the Islamic holy cities of Mecca and Medina. The Hijaz Mountains include what has been called the Cradle of Gold at Mad Ad Dahabah. The Cradle of Gold is the leading gold mining area in the Arabian Peninsula. It is located in the Al Medina province of the Hejaz region of Saudi Arabia. Gold was first mined in Arabia around 3000 BC. Some believe that this area on the Arabian Peninsula is the location of the gold mentioned in Genesis. Research by archaeologists from the U.S. indicates that the Pishon River may now be a dried up riverbed that once flowed 600 miles northeast from this cradle of gold area of the Hejaz in the same time period. The site has also been identified as possibly being King Solomon's gold mine. In this area, geologists have found a vast abandoned gold mine. Among their many finds are huge quantities of waste rock, estimated at a million tons, left by the ancient miners, some still containing traces of gold. Thousands of stone hammers and grindstones used to extract the gold from the ore littered the mine slopes. And to this day, gold is mined in this region. Next is the Gion River. The name Gion may be interpreted from Hebrew as bursting forth, gushing. It is described as encircling the entire land of Cush, spelled with a C, in the New Revised Standard Version of the book of Genesis. Cush was also the name of the eldest son of Ham, son of Noah. So this reference may point out that the Gion encircled the land that, at the time the passage was written, was inhabited by Cush's descendants. It has been argued that the land of Cush may have been located on either side or even both sides of the Red Sea. As such, Cush is alternatively identified in the scripture with the Arabian Peninsula. But there is no current river that encircles any of this area. Other sources associate the name Cush with Ethiopia. Ethiopians have long identified the Gion with the Blue Nile, which is one of the branches of the Upper Nile and roughly encircles the former kingdom of Gajam. From a current geographical standpoint, this would seem impossible. Since two of the other rivers said to issue out of Eden, the Tigris and the Euphrates, are in Mesopotamia. First century Jewish historian Josephus associated the Gion River with the Nile as well. But the Gion has also been associated with the Araxes, previously mentioned as a possible Pishon. Last, there is the Oxus River of Turkey in Central Asia that flows north into the Ariel Sea. It, too, does not encircle any land. In fact, now that I think about it, it would be impossible for a single river to completely encircle a large piece of land. How would it flow? Maybe that was just figurative language. Another proposed idea is that the Gion no longer exists, or has significantly altered its course, since the topography of the area has supposedly been altered by the Great Flood. As for Cush, besides Ethiopia, there are several possible locations for this area. First, there is Kish, spelled K-I-S-H, which was an ancient city in summer in Mesopotamia. It was thought to have been located in modern-day Iraq, 
roughly 8 miles or 12 kilometers east of Babylon, and 50 miles or 80 kilometers south of Baghdad. Kish was occupied from the Jumdat Nesser period, roughly 3100 BC, gaining prominence as one of the preeminent powers in the region during the early dynastic period. The Sumerian king list states that Kish was the first city to have kings following the flood, beginning with Jushur. Jushur's successor is called Kalnasani Bel, but this is actually a sentence in Akkadian meaning all of them were lord. Thus, some scholars have suggested that this may have been intended to signify the absence of a central authority in Kish for a time. As of today, it is believed that the area of Kish, with a K, is the most likely location of Kush, with a C. So maybe this was the region of the Gion. There will be more on Kish next week, when I cover its history through this time period. As of today, it is believed that the area of Kish, with a K, is the most likely location of Kush. So maybe this was the region of the Gion. The next river mentioned in Genesis was the Tigris. The Tigris is the eastern portion of the two great rivers that define Mesopotamia, the other being the Euphrates. The river flows south from the mountains of present-day southeastern Turkey through Iraq and empties into the Persian Gulf. Unlike the previous two rivers, we're nearly certain of the location of this one. The Tigris is 1,150 miles, or 1,850 kilometers long. For perspective, the Tigris is about 200 miles longer than the Ohio River of North America. Rising in the Taurus Mountains of eastern Turkey about 19 miles, or 30 kilometers, from the headwaters of the Euphrates. This certainly corresponds with the account in Genesis. Before flowing into the Persian Gulf, currently the Tigris combines with the Euphrates about 120 miles inland from the Gulf. But according to Pliny, a Roman historian of the 1st century AD, and other ancient historians, the Tigris originally had its outlet into the sea separate from that of the Euphrates. This should not come as too much of a surprise, as we have seen, even in recent history, how rivers change courses. The modern city of Baghdad, Iraq, stands on the banks of the Tigris. The port city of Basra straddles the confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates at the Persian Gulf. In ancient times, many of the great cities of Mesopotamia stood on or near the Tigris, drawing water from it to irrigate the civilization of the Sumerians. Notable Tigris-side cities included Nineveh, Tesaphon, Seleucia, while the city of Lagash was irrigated by the Tigris via a canal dug around 2400 BC. The original Sumerian name for the river was Igdena, probably meaning running water, which can be interpreted as the swift river, compared to its neighbor, the Euphrates, whose slower flow caused it to deposit more silt and build up a higher bed than the Tigris. Also, the Tigris has historically been notoriously prone to flooding following the spring melting of snow in the Turkish mountains. The Tigris is also mentioned in the book of Daniel, where Daniel was standing on its banks and had a vision of a great man who spoke to him. The river was again mentioned in the Deuterocanical books of Tobit, Judith, as well as Sirach. Last, there is the Euphrates, which is the longest and one of the most historically important rivers of Western Asia. Originating in eastern Turkey, the Euphrates flows through present-day Syria and Iraq. Its course runs about 1,900 miles or 3,000 kilometers. 
This is about 300 miles shorter than the Mississippi River. The earliest reference to the Euphrates come from the cuneiform text found in Shipperpak in the pre-Sargonic Nippur in southern Iraq and date to the mid-3rd millennia BC. In these texts, written in Sumerian, the Euphrates is called Burana. Surprisingly, the area of the Euphrates was at one time the home to a variety of wild animals. The Neo-Assyrian palace reliefs from the 1st millennia BC depict lion and bull hunts and fertile landscapes. 16th to 19th century European travelers in the Syrian Euphrates Basin reported on an abundance of animals living in the area, many of which have become extinct. Species like gazelle and the now extinct Arabian ostrich lived in the steppe bordering the Euphrates Valley, while the valley itself was home to the wild boar. Carnivorous species included the gray wolf, the golden jackal, the red fox, the leopard, and even the lion. The Syrian brown bear can be found in the mountains of southeast Turkey. The presence of a European beaver has been attested in the bonus assemblage of a prehistoric site in Syria, but the beaver has never been sighted in historical times. So the two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, lead us to the region known as Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is an ancient Greek word meaning between the rivers. The oldest known occurrence of the name Mesopotamia dates to the 4th century BC, when it was used to designate the land east of the Euphrates in North Syria. In modern times, it has been more generally applied to all the lands between the Euphrates and the Tigris, thereby incorporating not only parts of Syria, but almost all of Iraq and some of southeastern Turkey. A further distinction is usually made between Upper or Northern Mesopotamia and Lower or Southern Mesopotamia. Upper Mesopotamia, also known as Jezera, is the area between the Euphrates and the Tigris from their sources down to Baghdad. Lower Mesopotamia is the area from Baghdad to the Persian Gulf. In modern Western historiography of the region, the term Mesopotamia is usually used to designate the area from the beginning of time until the Muslim conquest in the 630s AD, with the names Iraq and Jezera being used to describe the region after that event. The early occupation of the Euphrates Basin was limited to its upper reaches, that is, the area that is widely known as the Fertile Crescent. I'll explore the Fertile Crescent more next week. In the Taurus Mountains, in the upper part of the Syrian Euphrates Valley, early permanent villages became established from the 11th millennium BC onward. In the absence of irrigation, these early farming communities were limited to areas where rain-fed agriculture was possible, that is, the upper parts of the Syrian Euphrates as well as Turkey. Later Neolithic villages, characterized by the introduction of pottery in the early 7th millennium BC, are known throughout this area. Occupation of Lower Mesopotamia is thought to have started in the 6th millennium BC and is generally associated with the introduction of irrigation, as rainfall in this area is largely insufficient for agriculture. Evidence of irrigation has been found at several sites dating to this period. Also, farmers in southern Mesopotamia had to protect their land from flooding each year. To protect against spring floods, they built levees. During the 5th millennia BC, or late Ubaid period, northeastern Syria was dotted by small villages, with some of them growing to a size of over 25 acres. In Iraq, sites like Urdu and Ur were occupied through the Ubaid period. Clay boat models found at Tel Mashneka along the Kobur indicate that transport via the rivers was practiced during this period. 
the Uruk period, roughly coinciding with the 4th millennia BC, saw the emergence of truly urban settlements across Mesopotamia. Cities like Tel Brak and Uruk grew to over 250 acres in size and displayed advancing architecture. The spread of southern Mesopotamian pottery, architecture, and other artifacts far into present-day Turkey and Iran has generally been interpreted as the reflection of a widespread trade system aimed at providing the Mesopotamian cities with raw materials. From roughly 3600 to 2300 BC, southern Mesopotamia experienced a growth in the number and size of settlements, suggesting strong population growth. These settlements, including Sumero-Akkadian sites like Sippur, Uruk, Ad-Ab, and Kish, were organized into competing city-states. Many of these cities were located along canals of the Euphrates and the Tigris that have since dried up, but that can still be identified using remote sensing imagery. A similar development took place in Upper Mesopotamia, Subertu, and Assyria, although only from the mid-third millennium and on a smaller scale than in Lower Mesopotamia. Large parts of the Euphrates Basin were for the first time united under a single ruler during the Akkadian Empire in the mid-second millennium BC, and the Ur Empire, which controlled either directly or indirectly through vassals large parts of modern-day Iraq and northeastern Syria. Following their collapse, the old Assyrian Empire, from about 2000 to 1750 BC, asserted its power over northeast Syria and northern Mesopotamia, while southern Mesopotamia was controlled by city-states like Ishan, Kish, and Larsa before their territories were absorbed by the newly emerged state of Babylonia under Hammurabi, in the early mid 18th century BC. In the second half of the second millennia BC, the Euphrates Basin was divided between Kassite Babylon in the south and Mitanni Assyria and the Hittite Empire in the north, while the Middle Assyrian Empire from around 1365 to 1020 BC eventually eclipsing the Hittites, Mitanni, and Kassite Babylonians. From the end of the Middle Assyrian Empire in the late 11th century BC, Struggles broke out between Babylonia and Assyria over the control of the Iraqi Euphrates Basin. Later, the Neo-Assyrian Empire eventually emerged victorious out of this conflict and also succeeded in gaining control of the northern Euphrates Basin in the first half of the first millennia BC. The Assyrians, Babylonians, and other societies will be covered in more detail as we work our way through the Old Testament. The geography of each area and the natural resources found there, of course, impact the ways that people lived. Northern Mesopotamia is made up of hills and plains. The land is quite fertile due to seasonal rains, as well as the rivers and streams flowing from the mountains. Early settlers farmed the land and used timber, metals, and stone from the nearby mountains. This vast flat area, the modern Jezera, is about 250 miles or 400 kilometers in length interrupted by only a single limestone mountain range rising abruptly out of the plain and branching off from the Zagros Mountains under the names Serizor, Hanren, and Sinjar. There are numerous remains of old cities that demonstrate how the land was once populated, though now it is mostly a wilderness. North of the plateau rises well-watered rolling hills, which lead to low ranges of limestone hills, sometimes arid and occasionally forested with dwarf oak and often shutting in rich plains and valleys between the northern and northeastern flank and the primary mountain line from which they detach themselves. Between them tower the massive ridges of the Euphrates and Zagros ranges, where the Tigris and Euphrates originate, and which cut off Assyria from Armenia and Kurdistan. 
The name Assyria itself was derived from that of the city of Assur, modernly referred to as Kala Surgat, on the right bank of the Tigris, midway between the greater and lesser Zab. It remained the capital long after the Assyrians had become the dominant power in Western Asia, but was finally supplanted by Kala, Nineveh, and Dur Sargina, some 60 miles or 97 kilometers farther north. It is generally in this area, Upper Mesopotamia, where the current conflict between the Iraqis, Syrians, Turks, numerous outside countries and ethnic groups, and ISIS is being fought. Southern Mesopotamia is made up of marshy areas and wide, flat, barren plains. Cities developed along the rivers which flow through the region. Early settlers had to irrigate the land along the banks of the rivers in order for their crops to grow. Since they did not have many natural resources, contact with neighboring lands in the form of trade was vitally important. In contrast with the arid plateau of northern Mesopotamia, stretched a rich alluvial plain of southern Mesopotamia. The rich soil was formed by the deposits of the two great rivers that mostly encircle it. To the east were the mountains of Elam, southward were the sea marshes and the Aramaic tribes, while on the west the civilization of Babylonia encroached beyond the banks of the Euphrates, upon the territory of the Semitic nomads. In this region was Ur, the earliest capital of the country. Also in this area was Babylon, while its suburbs occupied the west and southern sides of the river. What is thought to have been the primitive seaport of the country, Uridu, was just south of Ur. But it is now about 130 miles, or 210 kilometers, from the sea, as about 46 vertical inches of soil have been formed by the silting up of the shore. At least, this is the amount that has formed since the founding of Spassinus Sharax in the time of the Greek Alexander the Great. Spassinus Sharax is a port located in present-day Kuwait. The silting of Urdu amounts to about 115 horizontal feet, or 35 meters a year. It's completely amazing to me that all of that silt washing down these two rivers could move the shoreline that far in about 6,000 years. But I did the math, and it makes sense. The marsh in the south, like the adjoining desert, was frequented by Aramaic tribes. The combined flows of the Euphrates and Tigris as they passed through the marshes were known to the Babylonians as the Salt River a name they perhaps originally applied to the Persian Gulf. The alluvial plain of Babylonia was where the Bedouins pastured the flocks of their Babylonian masters. In this plain, a dense population appeared, owing primarily to an elaborate irrigation system. The area of southern Mesopotamia, as originally formed, was an uninhabited swamp teeming with the usual pest of such an area. But the reclamation forged by the early settlers made it the most fertile country in the world. This knowledge of irrigation and engineering seems to have been first developed in Babylonia, which was covered by a network of canals all deftly planned and seemingly well-regulated. The three primary canals carried off the waters of the Euphrates to the Tigris above Babylon, all helping to establish cities whose names we recognize today, such as Fallujah, Tel Ibrahim, and Opus. Owing primarily to the system of irrigation and the advancing knowledge of agriculture, it has been estimated that the growing of wheat resulted in a 200-300-fold to 300 fold return to the sower. They not only reaped what they sowed, but learned to reap much more of it. Once again, according to Pliny the Elder, the first century Roman writer, the grain was harvested twice per year. 
and even after that second harvest, the land proved suitable for the grazing of sheep. Berossus, a 3rd century BC Babylonian writer, wrote that the wheat, sesame, barley, orchids, palms, apples, and many kinds of shelled fruit grew wild, as wheat still does in the Iraqi town of Anna. By the way, I wouldn't recommend visiting that town for the wild fruits or grains, as it has been controlled by ISIS since 2014. Elmenus Marcellinus, a 4th century AD Roman soldier and historian, wrote that from the point reached by Julian's army to the shores of the Persian Gulf was one continuous forest of lushness. Not exactly what I envision when I think of that area of the world. That should give you some sense of what the lay of the land was in this historic area of the world. And with that, that's the episode for this week. Join me next week when I'll expand out a bit geographically and cover the Fertile Crescent as well as the climate of that region. Also, I'll give a brief summary into the human history of this region before doing a deeper dive into each civilization one at a time. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at thechurchestheworld.com. Comments and questions can be emailed to comments at thechurchestheworld.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase The Church is the World as four separate words. Thanks for listening and have a great week.